So, Pastor tasked me with a Christmas Eve service, and honestly, I've never preached on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or any time around Christmas. Uh, and so, <laughs> what? Actually, I think I did a year or so ago. Um, somewhere in, in December I preached, but it wasn't Christmas Eve. But I don't know if anybody realizes how difficult it is to talk about Christmas, to preach about Christmas. What, you know, what is there left to be said? Pastor said this. He's been preaching for 30 plus years, you know, every Christmas. And it's like, what is left to be said about the Christmas story? It's like, it's one part of a huge picture, right? And we, we zone in on it every year in December. And, and there's just, believe it or not, I think there's much that can be said about it that we still have not yet said. And God's going to reveal so much more as we study His Word and His story every day. But as I thought about what God would have me say on this day, I began to read through Matthew chapter 1, which Pastor did last week. You know, he talked about the, uh, uh, the lineage, the genealogy, and, and all those things. And I was reading through that. I skipped that part because he already covered that. And, um, but I was stopped at verse 23, which says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I wonder to myself, do we, the bride of Christ, really grasp what it means that God is? Is with us. Like we talk about it, we say it, we sing it every year, but do we really know what that means? And I'm hopefully, in our brief time together this morning, I'm hoping that we can explore what God with us really means. And thus our title, God with us. Now, I feel that in order to understand what God with us really means, we need to first determine who is us. Okay? Now, is us the whole world? Is us just the Jews? Is us the Gentiles and the Jews? This is something we need to determine. And upon further research, one will find that Matthew one twenty three was not the first time that it was said that they would bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. In fact, the first time it was stated it was in Isaiah 7.14. The Old Testament, it was a prophecy, and it was coming uh, from, actually, Isaiah to King Ahaz as a prophecy of a coming Messiah. So let's read 714. It's going to sound familiar. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, contextually speaking, this was initially given to the Jews, Okay. More specifically, spoken directly to King Ahaz, who was freaking out because he was about to be under attack and he didn't know what to do. Um, and to be frank, according to Second Chronicles, he was an evil king anyway, and he kind of had it coming. And God was going <laughs> to exact his judgment as God does uh, because according to Second Chronicles, he did not do what was right before the Lord. And actually, he led Israel into the worship of idols. In Baal, he, they, they led him, or he led Israel to worship uh, Baal. And uh, initially, uh, Ahaz was forming an alliance with Assyria because they were coming under attack 
from Samaria. And rather than trust God, he was going to trust an alliance with somebody who hated him. That sounds real intelligent when you say it out loud, doesn't it? But that's what he was going to do. And Isaiah's prophecy to Ahaz was, Frank, it was doom and gloom. But there was a piece of hope, and that piece of hope comes in verse 14 there. The doom part was that Israel would actually be destroyed and sent into captivity and spend 70 plus years in Babylon. Okay? That was all thanks to King Ahaz. Thank you, King Ahaz. The hope part was that God was going to send a Messiah, a Savior, a child, His own Son, Jesus Christ, who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And as Israel assumed that this prophecy was only applicable to them, you know, Ahaz, if he had realized that it was going to be several hundred years before that actually took place, it might have not actually been as hopeful to him at the time. But ultimately, it was the greatest hope that the entire world would experience. So let's go back and read Matthew 123 because I want to point out a couple things here. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, or which is translated God with us. Now, you may have noticed that there are some slight variances between Matthew 123 and Isaiah 7.14. First, Matthew changes the part that says, and shall call, to, and they shall call. Now, it's not, in, it's not very significant, honestly. Obviously, Matthew understood that Mary and Joseph were the parents of Jesus, and so he was just calling attention to the fact that this had happened, right? That they shall call Mary and Joseph. But he adds in there a little part that says, uh, which translated means God with us. In other versions, like the King James, it says, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, that is significant. And I'll tell you why. Actually, let me let Charles Spurgeon tell you why. Does anybody know who Charles Spurgeon is? All right. This is a, from a sermon that he preached back on December 26, 1875. And he says, those words being interpreted salute my ear with much sweetness. Why should the word Emmanuel in the Hebrew be interpreted at all? Was it not to show that it has reference to us Gentiles, and therefore it must be interpreted into one of the chief languages of the then existing Gentile world, namely the Greek? This being interpreted at Christ's birth and the three languages employed in the inscription upon the cross at his death show that he is not the Savior of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So you see, Matthew wasn't just writing to the Jews. He was pointing out that the fact that Isaiah 7.14 was a prophecy for the Gentiles and the Jews. Right? It's for everyone. And why? Because Matthew rightly understood that Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, our salvation was not meant to come and provide salvation to only the Jews, but to all of mankind who would receive him as Lord and Savior. So, how then should we define the word us? So I define it this way. Us is all who truly believe and call on the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Okay? So that's us. 
That is Jew, that is Gentile, that is Russian, that is African, that is Canadian. Yes, that's even the British. Anybody who calls on the name and believes in him as the Savior and calls him Lord and means it, really believes it in their heart, uh, that is us. Now, I spoke with the, the youth. We have been going through the Apostles' Creed talking about the Apostles' Creed and the different pieces. And the very first day, we talked about the very fact that it starts with, I believe. And that was significant because there's a difference between knowing and believing, isn't there? And here's the example I gave to them. I said, knowing is like this. If I am standing at the edge of a building, and I'm a stuntman in a movie, and I look down and there's a net or an airbag, I know that that is supposed to catch me if I jump or fall, right? I know that. Now, how do I know that I believe that that's going to catch me? I jump, right? So if I know that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and that's not enough, if I believe Him, right, I'm going to jump. I'm going to follow Him, right? So that's what I mean when I say that everybody that calls on him Lord and believes, we're talking about people that jump, right? So that is us. I just wanted to make sure that that was clear because Jesus himself said not everybody that calls me Lord is one of mine, right? So just calling him that, knowing that he is that, doesn't make you a Christian. It's the belief part. It's the jumping part that makes you a Christian. And that is who Jesus came for. That is the us. So, now that we have determined who us is, what does it mean that God is with us? Now, it's like a tongue twister right there. Now that we know who this are. I will say that God is with us in three different ways. And we'll go through each of these. First, He is with us in the flesh. Now, I've got several scriptures. Deborah, don't freak out, okay? I didn't put them in there. So, I just want you to listen. I want you to hear the Word of God. There's a lot of... Scripture I want to read as we go through these different pieces, but I just want you to listen to the Word of God. You know, sometimes we read it, sometimes we speak it, but sometimes we just need to hear it, right? Well, let's just hear it. It says this in Philippians 2, um, 6 through 8, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, uh, last week, Pastor spoke about how God coming in the flesh was important because he stated there were three things for why that actually mattered, okay? Why he actually came in the flesh and why this was important. And the the three things were this. It proved that God understands us, right? Y'all remember that? He understands us because he became us, right? It proved that God cares for us because we're talking about the God of the universe who literally took on the form. Now, he didn't take on the sin as far as like becoming a sinner, right? But he took on the form of man who was a creature who sinned against God. He became those who sinned against him so that he might save those who have sinned against him. And it demonstrated that God cares for us. And it proved, number three, that God experienced what we go through. 
You know, we, you know, God doesn't understand. You've heard of people say, well, God doesn't get the pain I'm going through. All right. On the night that he was betrayed, he wasn't just betrayed by Judas. He was betrayed by his best friends. Right? He was betrayed by those closest to him. Judas, yes, he's the one that betrayed him to, you know, the Sanhedrin. But did the other disciples stay and with him? No. And then Peter. Peter denied him three times. You don't think he knows what it's like to be rejected? He understands us, doesn't he? He's experienced our pain. In the desert, he was tempted three ways by Satan. When he was at probably his lowest physically, right? He had been fasting for 40 days. No food, no water. You don't think he understands what it's like to be tempted by something? I mean, the first thing that Satan tempted him with was what? Food. Lord, you've been, you've been fasting for 40 days. I'm sure you're hungry. You could just say to these stones, become bread, and there they are. You have food. And Jesus' response, man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Amen? He understands what we go through because he's been through it. Do you think he understands what it's like to be physically beaten? Abused? Accused of things that you've not done? He gets you. He understands you. And he didn't get that by sitting on his throne in heaven, but becoming, but by becoming one of us in the flesh. That is why God with us is so amazing to even think about. He did it so he could get first person point of view. Right? He came. He experienced life as man. He walked through our trials, our tribulations, our temptations. And in light of all those things, he still remained obedient to his father God, even unto death, it says in Philippians. And ultimately, he demonstrated what Jesus called John, in John fifteen thirteen the ultimate act of love, which was to give himself for another. That was the whole point that he came in the flesh to begin with. He truly is God with us in a very real, very fleshly sense. Not in the fleshly sense that we think, like, I'm getting in the flesh. right? Not that kind of flesh. But fleshly is, and he took on this form. But it doesn't end there because God is also with us in spirit. Now, after Jesus had come to us in the flesh, we know that he bore our sins to the cross. And he died. And then his death reconciled us to God himself. And then he conquered death through his resurrection. Death could not keep him down. And that paved the way as becoming the firstborn of those who would be resurrected, is what the Bible tells us. Which, as we recall, all of us is all who would believe in and call on the name of Lord or of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we know that Jesus would ascend into heaven and go and prepare for us an eternal place. But he didn't just say, all right, guys, I'm going to go for who knows how long. Only the Father knows. And I'm just going to leave you guys. Good luck. Enjoy the next several thousand years without me. I'll be thinking about you and praying for you. Right? That's not what he did, is it? <laughs> he promised us something. He promised us a helper. 
In John 14, he says this in verses 16 through 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you when? How long? Forever. Okay? Forever. That's a long time. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and where? In you. Acts 1, verses 4 through 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's the helper, by the way. Acts 2, verses 2 through 4. This is just the next chapter. And suddenly, they're up in that upper room, right? And there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay? So while God came to us in the flesh and was with us in person of Jesus Christ, He did not abandon us and leave us to our own devices. He remains not only with us, but according to John 14, in us, through the Holy Spirit, who empowers us according to Ezekiel 36, and guides us according to Isaiah 11, and intercedes for us according to Romans 8, and teaches us according to John 14. So while God came to us in the flesh, He did all of that to take care of us after He left. Right? So God is still with us. Right? And that is a comforting thing. Because He actually said to His disciples, it's actually a good thing that I go. Because they're like, wait, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're going to leave us? And he's like, look, guys, it's actually better that I go for you because I'm going to leave behind something better. I'm going to leave behind my spirit, which is literally going to not just walk with you, but going to walk in you. It's going to change you from the inside out. It's going to empower you. You're going to do things, guys, that you never imagined possible. You thought the things I did was crazy? Wait till you see what God is going to do through you. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what He left us. So God is with us, both in flesh and in spirit. But finally, He is with us in truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14-17 through 17 says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, repeat that with me, all Scripture. Is it just the New Testament? No. Is it just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No. Is it just the verses that we feel good about? <laughs> what is it again? All Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. For what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete. Be whole. And be equipped for every good work. So not only did He come and be with us in the flesh, but He came 
and he left us the spirit and he left us his word. He left us the scripture. And while the Bible is not God, it is inspired by and written by God to provide to us a written account of his story. His story of what? Redemption and salvation. And not only that, but to provide us a description of who he is, what his character is like, of the depth of his love as demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ, of his standard of holiness and righteousness, to provide a means of correction and a means of education so that we can learn his ways, his commandments, his truth. And so that we can, what, believe is what it says right there, that we have these scriptures for what? So that we have salvation through Jesus, so that we know these things, so that we believe these things. In other words, God is with us through his revelation to man that was recorded in the pages of scripture, in his truth. But his story of redemption didn't end with the last verse of Revelation. It continues to this day. He remains with us to this day. His bride, the church, become, has become the very image and reflection of God to this world. You see, the birth of Christ was a miracle. It was the moment that God provided his love for the world by becoming one of us. And in the Gospel of John, the birth of Christ was recounted in an interesting way. Have you ever looked at how each of the Gospels have, have mentioned the birth of Christ? Mark doesn't talk about it. Matthew does. John does. But John does it this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, there ain't nothing you see that wasn't made by him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He became the light to the world. That day on whatever day it was, we can get into the debate, but there really is no debate. It was not in December, I can tell you that. We just happened to celebrate it then, don't we? But he came as a light to the world. Verse 9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jews. And his own people did not receive him. Instead, they did what? They killed him.
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's something to shout amen for. Amen? Amen. Amen. He gave that right to you. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, it is this light that lives in us now. The Holy Spirit, His grace, His truth, all of these things together, becoming the light who, for those who have received Him. That we would become bearers of that light to a world who is still in darkness to this day. And if you don't think so, just open Facebook for about five minutes. Open up some news channel for five minutes and you will see just how dark and depraved this world really is. And we have been given a task because when He came in the flesh and He left us His Spirit and His truth, He did that with a commission to us that we would become the light to this world. That we would not become somebody who's ashamed of Him or ashamed of His Word or of His truth, but that we would stand boldly and proclaim it to the world. So that they, what? So that they may be drawn to the light and receive freedom themselves. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what God with us is all about. He's with us so that He can be with them. 